concern for me but had no opportunity to show it. Now that, that I am referring to being in need, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty, and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share in my distress. You Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. I have been paid in full more often than enough. I am fully satisfied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will satisfy every need of yours according to his riches and the glory of Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The friends who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of the emperor's household. For the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. the conclusion of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Paul loved this congregation. They grabbed his heart with their joy and generosity, with their willingness to support his ministry when no one else would, and with their authentic desire to understand and live out what it means to be the body of Christ in the world. The text we have this morning is in essence a thank you note for their courageous and self-sacrificing generosity with him. This heartfelt expression of gratitude speaks a relevant, wise, and powerful word from first century Asia Minor to us in 21st century America about our attitudes toward possessions, about paralyzing fear, about scarcity and abundance, about the importance of community, and about contentment and gratitude. These if issues evidence our human tendency to locate our contentment in stuff and status and to put trust in ourselves and our circumstances and in illusions of self-sufficiency and success. Paul's thank you note describes how his mind has changed and his heart has been transformed by the loving presence of Christ. So no longer phased by life's ups and downs or transitory attachments to status and possessions, Paul learns over time 
to put his trust in the spirit of Christ living in him and to define contentment in light of that relationship. The word content that Paul uses in this passage is the Greek word autarkes, which he borrows from Stoic philosophy. According to William Barclay, the highest aim of Stoicism was autarkeia, self-sufficiency. Barclay says, in order to achieve contentment, the Stoics abolished all desires and eliminated all emotions. Love was rooted out, and caring was forbidden. The Stoics made of the heart a desert and called it peace. The Stoics said, I will learn contentment by a deliberate act of my own will. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ, who infuses his strength into me. For the Stoic, contentment was a human achievement. For Paul, it was a divine gift. Stoic self-sufficiency becomes in Paul's hands and heart God-sufficiency. This is what I have learned about contentment, Paul says. I can do anything as I let God infuse me with the power of Christ. As I face life the way it is, with its ups and downs, I become more comfortable in my own skin, less fearful, more at peace. I want this contentment for you too. Your contentment you let go of your dependence on the circumstances around you and focus on gratitude and giving. Giving makes you more like God and forms you more fully into the image of God within you. Generosity draws you closer to each other and turns you outward as it forms inward contentment. Contentment comes easily when life is sailing along on a glassy sea, doesn't it? But Paul's life has not been a glassy sea. Remember, he is writing this letter from prison, and prison is not his first rodeo. He has known the pinnacle of success and the depths of humiliation. He has known scarcity and abundance. He has been attacked and ridiculed. He's wrestled with his own inner demons, weathered storms inside and out, and faced shipwrecks. Contentment for Paul is not controlled by life's circumstances. So how does Paul arrive at this God-sufficient understanding of contentment? I'm almost positive that Paul had heard, identified with, and learned from the story that Julie read earlier about Jesus, the disciples, and the storm at sea. That story mirrors the circumstantial storms to which Paul refers in Philippians and raises the ultimate question on which Paul claims his contentment is founded. Where is your faith? sure you have your own storm story. We can swap those later. But here's one of mine. While living on the plains of West Texas, Rod and I learned how quickly fierce storms could blow up and wreak havoc across that flat terrain. 
We learned to take weather watches and warnings seriously and to be ready to move to shelter in a low-lying area at a moment's notice. The sole exit in our first West Texas apartment was through a door in the living room that opened onto a patio. Now, that was the sole exit, only one. The patio included a large grassy area that served as a low-lying area right outside our door. Our bedroom was at the back of the apartment connected to this sole exit by a long hall. One evening, storms were brewing, the kind that make three o'clock in the afternoon look like midnight. Tornado warnings prompted us to stay up late, listening anxiously to weather reports, fearful of falling asleep lest a tornado strike. We finally decided that we were being silly and should go on to bed. A warning siren or that locomotive sound that tornadoes make would certainly wake us up and we could move quickly into that handy low-lying area. So we put out clothes to grab in case of an emergency and miraculously went to sleep. About 2 a.m., I was jolted awake as Rod jumped up out of bed yelling, It's a tornado! <laughs> he already had one leg in his pants and was hopping around on foot trying to stuff the other leg in when I finally wrestled out of the covers he had thrown over me in his panic. <laughs> I grabbed clothes and ran for the exit. Rod in close pursuit, hopping on one leg, trouser leg flopping. <laughs> we got to the door, hearts racing, ears pounding, adrenaline pumping, pl prayers flying. It's possible that a few other extraneous words flew out too. While fumbling with the lock, it began to dawn on us that there was no tornado siren, no locomotive sound, no storm noise at all. The rain had stopped, the stars were out, dad's calm. Rod had dreamed the whole thing. <laughs> Maybe like mine, your storm story has a happy ending, but storms do not always end happily. And when we are in the midst of them, they are terrifying and seem endless. Have you ever been in a car when a hailstorm is outside? Endless. Storms are not, taken to, not to be taken lightly and oftentimes are no laughing matter. In the story of Mark, Jesus wants to cross the Sea of Galilee to the other side. His band of disciples include at least four experienced fishermen who make their livelihood on the Sea of Galilee, where fearsome storms can occur at a moment's notice. And the other side contains the other people on the other side of the tracks, the unknown. Because the fishermen respected the untamed power and chaotic nature of the sea, they do not underestimate the risk it presents. They know this sea is dangerous in the daytime. Jesus wants to cross at night. His request sets their anxiety in motion. The obvious possibility of a sudden dangerous storm at sea, something that skilled fishermen are accustomed to, mirrors a brewing inner storm brought on by the uncertainty and fear of heading across the dark unknown sea at night. This inner unrest rivals the fiercest of sea squalls. But Jesus says, let us go. So off they sail into the dark 
boatloads of apprehensive people anxious about what they know and wary of what they don't know. Eyes peeled, muscles taut, hearts racing, all on full alert. All that is except Jesus, who probably, probably tired from his day, falls asleep immediately. Meanwhile, the worst fears of his companions become reality. A furious storm blows up while Jesus sleeps through it. In desperation, excuse me, the, the fishermen panic while Jesus sleeps through it all. And in de desperation, his terrified companions shake him awake with their own version of, it's a tornado. Rabbi, don't you care that we are perishing? <clears throat> Mark's account simply says, he woke up. Jesus doesn't jump up startled and run screaming around the boat in terror. No, he stands up and calmly rebukes the wind. We understand rebuke as an angry word. And while it is stern, the actual Greek carries the connotation of respect for one's adversary and denotes the ability to take a careful assessment of one's opponent before acting. Jesus sizes up the situation and respectfully and calmly inserts what is most needed. Peace. Be still. Picture Jesus putting his arms around the tempest and saying, There, there, no need to be so blustery. Hush, then, I'm with you. He tends the storm as a loving parent tends a distraught child. And the great storm, the text says, immediately becomes great calm. The storm within the disciples dissipates just as quickly. Jesus treats them in the same way he treats the wind, firmly and gently, with a question. Why are you so afraid? Instead of suggesting that they have nothing to fear, he respects their fear and asks them to face it. Jan Martel's The Life of Pi is a story about a young boy stranded following a shipwreck with only a Bengal tiger for a companion. As he recounts his adventure, Pi observes, only fear can defeat life. Fear is a clever, treacherous adversary. It has no decency, respects no law or convention, shows no mercy. It goes for your weakest spot, which it, it finds with unnerving ease. Fear begins in your mind, always. So you must fight hard to express it. You must fight hard to shine the light of words upon it. Because if you don't, if your fear becomes a wordless darkness that you avoid, perhaps even manage to forget, you open yourself to further attacks of fear because you never truly fight the opponent who threatens you. A consistent theme on Jesus' lips and throughout Scripture is do not be afraid. That is a very different statement than there is nothing to fear. Fear is real. There are things to fear. All of us are fearful about something at some point in life. Fear is a healthy response at times and can be a most effective teacher if it is named and faced. The wise rabbi knows this. His question, why are you afraid, opens a path out of the fear of gripping his companions, 
prodding them to face their fear, to name it, to assess its source, so that it does not settle into a wordless darkness that they avoid laying themselves open to further attacks. And after addressing their fear, Jesus asked his disciples a second question. Have you still no faith? This question links their fear inextricably with their faith. In Luke's version of the story, the question Jesus asks is, where is your faith? Luke's Jesus poses a locational question. It's all about location. Is your faith in that which you fear? In your outward circumstances? Or is your faith in my presence with you? Do you trust what's outside of you, the tempest, the darkness, the chaos, the scarcity, the change, the inadequacy, that which you can see? Or do you trust what's inside, the mysterious abundance, the presence, the spirit who lives inside you always? What controls your inner peace and contentment? Where is your faith? I'm positive that Paul, in the midst of the fearful storms in his life, faced this question over and over, repeatedly confronted his own tendency to cling to a need for certainty and security and his temptation to give in to the fear of the storms within and around him. Wise Paul knows that at some point for all of us, the sky turns black. The wind whips up the waves. Our small boats on that dark and chaotic sea, headed for unfamiliar territory on the other side, fill up with water and begin to sink. We lose a job, get caught in a lie, fail a course, receive a frightening diagnosis, lose a relationship, slip into addiction, experience depression. Something changes suddenly. Something we fear becomes real. Something we dread happens. Something we are not prepared to face slaps us in the face. The bottom falls out of our well-ordered existence and we find ourselves in serious danger of sinking as the storm rages inside and out. Anxiety wells up in our throats. Fear paralyzes our bodies and our hearts begin to race. Can I live through this? Can I take another step? Why, God? Don't you care that I'm perishing? Contentment, you say? No way. Slowly but surely, circumstance by circumstance, storm by storm, Paul learns the secret of contentment. To trust the powerful presence of the one who is in his boat amid the storms and circumstance and uncertainties he faces. Regardless of whether or not that presence seems asleep or wide awake. While in seminary, my older son Madison did chaplaincy training in a South Chicago hospital. And one of his assignments was to lead a Bible study for patients in the hospital's behavioral medicine unit. So he, chose to, he chose to use this marking passage as his text Nearing the end of the time allotted for their discussion, Madison noticed that one of the patients had listened intently but not yet contributed to the conversation. 
Madison said to him, you've been quiet, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I do want to give you a chance to speak if you want. The man, in a hospital facing the dark storms of his own internal emotional instability, hesitated. Then he offered this profound thought. I think the core of this passage is that Jesus isn't really asleep. I mean, he is in the boat, and the boat is filling up with water. Come on, Jesus wasn't asleep while that was going on. I think he was just lying there calmly with his eyes closed, waiting for the disciples to acknowledge his presence with him, waiting on them to find the courage or the desperation or whatever it took for them to recognize and admit their need of him, their dependence on him, and to ask for his help. When our boats start to sink, when the storm threatens and we cry out in panic and terror, don't you care that I am perishing? We have to recognize that Jesus is with us in our boat. We may think he's asleep. We may have put him to sleep with our inattention. We may have even bound and gagged him in the back of the boat with our fear and ungrateful need for certainty. But the point of the story is that he's waiting on us to remember that he's always there, to admit our need for and dependence on his calming presence. There is where we find contentment. Paul knows this. From a prison cell, he gives testimony to it. Do not fail to notice one more detail of this storm story. The disciples' boat does not set out alone. Other boats are with them. We sail together. We sink or swim together. We bear each other through storms. And that is one way the presence of the living Christ is with us always, in and through the other. We are not alone in the body of Christ. We are knit together. Pastor, writer, and photographer Jan Richardson posted this reflection on her website. Yesterday I performed a wedding. The bride's father had become quite ill, and though everyone hoped he would be walking his daughter down the aisle, he died. Two days before the wedding, the family held his funeral. Peace, a friend said to me as I prepared for the bittersweet wedding ceremony. Peace. I said to the beautiful bride as she prepared to walk down the aisle with her father. Peace, said the community that gathered around the couple, acknowledging the loss, celebrating the love that had drawn us there. Peace, we said, unable to stop the storm, but choosing to stand within it, to still ourselves, to turn our faces toward the one who speaks peace, who breathes peace, who is and then she adds, I cannot claim to still the storm that has seized you, cannot calm the waves that wash through your soul, but I will wade into the waters, will stand with you in this storm, will say peace to you in the waves, peace to you in the winds, peace to you in every moment that finds you still within the storm.
Life on the chaotic sea, unpredictable, full of risk and anxiety, threatens to undo our moorings, unhinge our peace, and shake our contentment. But ultimately, contentment is to be found in the one in whom we put our trust. When your trust is in the one in the boat with you, and not in the storm that rages, or the fear that paralyzes, or the uncontrollable circumstances of our lives, when you are faithing it, rather than clinging to a need for certainty or security, when you know that other folks are sailing the stormy seas with you, then you can experience that inner tending calm. You are free enough from your own self-sufficiency to embody the contentment of God's sufficiency. And you are free to give generously of yourselves to others whose boats are taking on water. Paul can speak about this because he knows it. He's lived it. His Philippian friends have lived it with him. Because Paul knows in whom his faith is located, he can give witness. Whatever I have, wherever I am, whatever I face, I can make it through anything with the one who makes me who I am. And so, my friends, can you? What storm are you facing? What fear has you in its grip? On who and what are you relying for contentment? Hear Jesus' voice. Peace. Be still. The story's not over.